0: What's
1: that? I just made love to you.
0: Who was realizing that now?
1: And I have no idea who specifically you're referring to when you said James Bond. Mm-hmm. Because earlier when you were telling me that you I reminded you of James Bond, mm-hmm. and I was saying that it was the nicest thing anybody's ever said to me. Mm-hmm. I naturally assumed well, I naturally assumed that you knew what I was talking about. Because if you don't, if you aren't talking about the guy that I think that you're talking about, well, then you have me mistaken for somebody else. Because in my mind, there is only one Bond. Well, on that we agree. Same time on three. One. Two. Three. Roger Roger Moore. George Moore? Are you kidding kidding me? Yeah, I was kidding too. The only James Bond is Timothy Dalton. forever. I feel so much better. <laughs> I
0: do. Hello everybody, this is Dan Mecca and this is another episode of The B-Side, a spin-off podcast of The Film Stage Show for the Film Stage website. Here we take movie stars and examine not the movies that made them famous or the movies that kept them famous, but rather the movies that they made in between. Today, however, we are going to go another direction and we are going to Talk about those young men and women, those young actors and actresses that were given the shot at movie stardom and didn't quite make it. Those almost movie stars. Now, as I speak, movie stars in general, in the traditional sense, are few and far between. Once upon a time, performers like Clark Gable, Claudette Colbert, Gary Cooper, they were enough to get an audience to come out and see the films they made, regardless of genre in most cases these actors and actresses were usually controlled by the movie studio that had them on contract as well. As time marched on, these stars would garner more independence. You can look at the careers of people like Burt Lancaster and Kirk Douglas, who would uh, ultimately start their own production companies as they gained fame. Another thing you can look at is the Paramount Antitrust case of 1948, which, uh, in which the Supreme Court decided that movie studios could not also own the movie theaters where their movies screened. In the 1950s and into the 1960s, the budgets got bigger and the investments got a bit riskier. Stars began to demand a percentage of their pictures gross, uh, sometimes instead of a hefty upfront salary. Now people think of Jack Nicholson when this comes up because he famously took a percentage on the gross of Batman when he played the Joker Uh, Instead of a big upfront salary, but this was something that had been done before. And, you know, you had people like Cary Grant, you know, who had the heft and and the, you know, the uh, power to do this, doing it far before Nicholson did. And this was kind of a part of what ended up being the changing landscape in the 50s and 60s in Hollywood, right? And by the 60s, you have counterculture, you have a bit of social change and (laughs) significant unrest, and just with that, a cultural change in the type of film people, specifically young people, were wanting to see. And with that in mind, your Tyrone Powers, your Ava Gardner's, your matinee stars were in some cases replaced by your Gene Hackmans, your Barbara Streisand's, right? A little bit more diversity, a little bit more interesting leading people, right? Justin Hoffman, right? You know, you have that idea. Famously, Robert Redford wanted to play the role of Benjamin Braddock in the film version of The Graduate, and Mike Nichols, the director, wouldn't let him have the part. I'm reading from a Vanity Fair article from 2008 by Sam Kashner here, where Nichols says that he discussed the role with his friend, Robert Redford, who he had just done a play with, um, and Red- Redford was eager for the part, and Nichols This is Nichols uh, speaking. I said, you can't play it. You can never play a loser. And Redford said, what do you mean? Of course I can play a loser. And I said, okay, have you ever struck out with a girl? And Redford said, what do you mean? And he wasn't joking. Right, so you have this type of thing. You have this very shrewd, honest Hollywood for at least a period of time. And of course, not that there wasn't your Robert Redfords and your Faye Dunaways who still existed, but there was a more of an interesting palette of of people. Your Roy Scheiders, right? You're, you're kind of... Not a, not, the, not the first face you think of when you think of Matinee Idol. And that's the 70s. That's what we now call New Hollywood, right? Things were a bit experimental, right? You had major movie studios releasing pictures like The King of Marvin Gardens, Five Easy Pieces. You know, obviously Bonnie and Clyde being kind of a benchmark in some ways. That was in the late 60s, of course. But the violence in that picture was unheard of for a major motion picture. Now, as Spielberg's Jaws and Lucas's Star Wars gave way to the economics of the summer blockbuster, which now we know very well, of course, and flops like Heaven's Gate by Michael Cimino made Hollywood and studios cautious of auteurs and the auteur theory, things began to change once again, right? So that brief period of new Hollywood came and went Kind of like a flicker, sadly, uh, of course. Now, this brings us to the 80s and 90s, where you have people like Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone and Eddie Murphy leading a lot of pictures, action pictures, comedy pictures. The product, though, you'll see is a little bit more homogenous on a studio level. Of course, you have your indie movement, you have your Jim Jarmusch, your Spike Lee, your Steven Soderbergh putting out great, interesting things You know, at your Sundance Film Festivals And where they could be screened And making a decent amount of money Sex Lies made a lot of money Spike Lee's early movies Made more money than we probably remember Honestly But for Hollywood For the traditional movie studios For the traditional movie stars You had stuff like Commando
1: If it's a mission no man can survive He's the man For the job Arnold Schwarzenegger, Commando.
0: Cut to the 90s where people like Tom Cruise are demanding more creative control over their projects, right? He, in 1996, produced Mission Impossible and had a very big creative hand in that. Jim Carrey was famously lambasted for getting $20 million up front for The Cable Guy, a dark comedy directed by Ben Stiller that ultimately underperformed, though now I think a lot of us regard it as a pretty impressive comedy. After a particularly embarrassing couch incident and subsequent interview with Matt Lauer using the word glib and discounting the existence of postpartum depression which we went over some of this in our Tom Cruise episode. Tom Cruise's face was printed on an entertainment weekly magazine with the headline, Is Tom Cruise Really Worth $100 Million? This, of course, in reference to the reported amount of money the actor-producer made on War of the Worlds. Steven Spielberg also made a chunk of the back end on War of the Worlds, making that big hit not so big for the studio, right? So this is kind of what we're talking about. Now it's 2018, about to be 2019, and Tom Cruise is leaning, on his Mission Impossible franchise to stay relevant, right? He's even dipping back into Top Gun, filming Top Gun 2 with Joseph Kaczynski as we speak. IP is the thing, right? And if you have a Jennifer Lawrence or a Chris Pratt or a Robert Downey Jr. or Scarlett Johansson, they will help people get to your movies, want to see your movies. Of course they will, but rarely can be rarely can they be the one thing, right? For every, you know, franchise these guys have, they have something like Jennifer Lawrence having Red Sparrow, which underperformed this year. Um, Robert Downey Jr. has The Judge, right? Chris Pratt, I think, has had a pretty good streak. You know, he his presence in the Magnificent Seven remake helped. Him and Jennifer Lawrence uh, made Passengers together, which I think is a great example of kind of a version of what... Um, the studios are trying to do where you have two movie stars, quote unquote, and that movie performed okay, made a hundred million dollars, barely domestic, did a little bit better internationally. So point is the idea of a movie star being the one thing kind of doesn't exist anymore, right? So now that we're now that we're at the present, let's track back a little bit to the past and talk about these almost movie stars, right? So in the nineties and the two thousands, I think is an interesting time to talk about these almost stars because this is a time where movie stars are still relevant it's before but right before ip becomes the end-all be-all right which is obviously what we're talking about what we're seeing right now right the marvels the dceus the fast and furious franchises right these things are existing they are evolving but they are not the only thing, right? There's no Netflix, right? There's still thrillers that are being made and put into theaters, uh, wide released. There's still courtroom dramas. There's still romantic comedies pretty regularly, right? Rom-coms are not just something that are on Netflix, which is becoming more common as well. And same thing goes for thrillers. Same thing goes for all these things. There's a trailer right now for a movie called Triple Frontier starring Ben Affleck, Oscar Isaac, Charlie Hunnam, Garrett Hedlund, Pedro Pascal, that's a Netflix movie, right? Which I feel like we all would think five, even five years ago, would have been a pretty mainstream release by a major movie studio. So who are these young men and women who got the shot but never made it happen? Well, there's a million of them, right? Names like Josh Hartnett, Chris Klein, Gretchen Maul, Lily Sobieski, Omar Epps, Tay Diggs, Lucy Liu, Nia Long. A lot of looks, a lot of talent, a lot of opportunity, and, you know, full disclosure, a lot of success, but just not movie star success, right, from most of them. Gretchen Mol is one of the first people I think of because in 1998, and I remember reading this issue and seeing this cover, she was on a cover uh, for Vanity Fair that was basically asking the question, is this the new Hollywood It Girl? Now, of course she wasn't, but she did go on to a successful career. She has a great stint in Boardwalk Empire, among many other things. So, you know, like I said, we're not really playing violins for these people. It's more just an examination of what happened, right? There are many reasons one can point to why someone doesn't become a movie star when given the opportunity. The first thing I think of is the It Factor, right? That quote-unquote thing thing that starlets have and have had, right? It's referred to in many ways, twinkle in the eye, a way about her, style, grace, seems like someone you'd like to know, doesn't seem like he's trying. How most of these people got the chance is largely reasonable. Let's take Josh Hartnett, the actor who inspired this episode. I've got a soft spot for Hartnett and believe he's got something most filmmakers have failed to wholly capture and most audiences have unfortunately not been lucky enough to see. He was born in Minnesota in 1978. He got famous quite young after an early lucky break getting a prominent role on an ABC show called Cracker, which aired in 1997. It only ran 16 episodes, but it was well-received critically and got heartened seen by those who mattered, right? And then... Not long after, he had big, significant roles in above-average horror movies, The Faculty, and Halloween H2O. And then not long after that, he had an impressive supporting turn in Sofia Coppola's directorial debut, The Virgin Suicides, playing a character named Trip Fontaine. The same year The Virgin Suicides came out, 2000, Fox made a movie called
1: Here on Earth. From 20th Century Fox. Chris Klein, Lily Sobieski, Josh Hartnett. Some people live their whole lives
0: and never fall in love. Fun fact, Here on Earth came out the same day as Whatever It Takes, another movie starring another almost star, Mr. Shane West. Both films did minimal business at the box office, though The Virgin Suicides came out only a month later, so that certainly helped keep Hartnett's stock up. Um, for everybody that was kind of thinking of him as maybe a potential something. Then came 2001, which was a huge year for the actor, right? He was in five movies that came out this year, though three of them kind of came and went, right? You had Blow Dry, which was a Miramax film that came out early in the year, a hair cutting rom com of sorts that also starred Rachel Lee Cook, another almost star in some respects. You had, um, Oh, which I is a personal kind of favorite of mine. I really like Oh, directed by Tim Blake Nelson, starring Julius Stiles and Mackay Pfeiffer, two other almost stars. It's a modern retelling adaptation of Shakespeare's Othello with Hartnett playing the Iago role. Um, it's a college or prep college basketball drama, right, where Kai Pfeiffer is, oh, the star of the basketball team, and Hartnett is Hugo, who is the son, is the coach's son and kind of more of a utility player and obviously manipulates, oh, and what have you. If you know the story, you know what happens. That movie didn't really do much either, though I do think, like I said before, I do think it's underrated. I do think there's some interesting things in there. The two big ones, of course, right, are Pearl Harbor which is the Michael Bay, Pearl Harbor film, the war romance epic, um, that even though did big business, was lambasted by critics, um, also starring Ben Affleck and Kate Beckinsale, and then... um, Later in the year, much later, another war movie that was more beloved by critics and got a couple of Oscar nominations, Black Hawk Down, which is more of an ensemble piece, but Hardnet has a pretty central role in it. Now, the fifth movie and perhaps the most fascinating one is Town and Country, which is the Warren Beatty fiasco. That came out in 2001, starring everybody you've ever heard of in Hollywood, right? This is basically Beatty trying to do Preston Sturges to some degree. It's all over the place. Cost $90 million to make. Made $10 million worldwide. Lost over $100 million after um, promotional costs for the studio. Technically directed by Peter Chelsom, though I think history puts the blame on Beatty, who I think tried to wrestle control of the whole thing from Chelsum you know, Hartnett's in it. I believe he plays Beatty's son. I've seen the movie. It's it's a disaster, right? But it's one of these interesting, you know, flexes by a, by a great, powerful Hollywood man, right? I mean, Beatty kind of, the back half of his career has been peppered with a lot of these, right? Rules Don't Apply recently came out a couple of years ago. Similarly, costly flop, right? Didn't do much Howard Hughes, long gestating Howard Hughes biopic, kind of a strange film in, in a lot of respects. Um, and then even Dick Tracy, though it did well, was thought of in that way. He did a movie called Love Affair, the movie where he met Annette Bening. So Beatty, who had made a lot of hits early in his career, has spent a lot of the back half kind of doing these curios and not really getting you know, much love for them. But anyway, Hartnett's in it. It's a small role. But it's these five movies, right? This is the time. And I think with the success of Pearl Harbor and Black Hawk Down, it was enough for Hollywood writ large to think, hey, maybe this is a guy who can kind of hold and carry his own movie. And then you have the next few years. Josh
1: Hartnett, 40 Days and 40 Nights. Harrison Ford. Let me know when you're back on the street i driving! Josh Hartnett. Uh, yeah, this is much better. Nice driving. Sorry. Hollywood Homicide.
0: Good old Hollywood Homicide. Now, I will say this, for 40 Days and 40 Nights, which came out in 2002, directed by Michael Lehman, that movie performed okay. I think it made nearly $100 million worldwide, made... 37 or so million domestically. It's a sex comedy. It's a kind of has aged poorly. If you watch it now, there's a lot of kind of weird rape stuff in it. There's a scene with Vanessa Shaw and Josh Hartnett at the end that's basically a rape scene that's played for comedy. So there's a lot of stuff like that that's weird. I do think. Hartnett and Shannon Sazamon, who is the the female lead in the movie, they have a nice chemistry. And I think there are nice moments in the movie. I remember being younger and actually really liking this movie, of course, as I was liking Hartnett as an actor during that period. Going back and watching it, um, yeah, it's it, there's a lot of weird things in it. Griffin Dunn has this expanded role as Josh Hartnett's boss. Doesn't really work. He's kind of a pervert. That's the whole joke. Yeah. Um, Hartnett also works for a tech company that feels very 2002, almost dated. I would imagine dated by the time it even came out. We'll actually get to another movie Heartnet made that's similar in that dating of tech companies and whatnot, which is interesting to think about. But the movie, the point is the movie does okay, right? So I think if you're John Hollywood, you're like, all right, Hartnett can maybe do something. He's charming, what have you. And then you have Hollywood homicide. Now, it's a Ron Shelton movie. It's just a a miss, a miss, <laughs> just a miss. I mean, it's it, the. I think the premise is interesting, right? The title's interesting, Hollywood Homicide. They're detectives who work for Hollywood Homicide, and it's that idea of. LA is crazy, man, and even the cops are doing their own thing. And, you know, Josh Hartnett's character is this young stud, and he's also a yoga instructor, and he wants to be an actor, but he's bad. Wink, wink, haha. Ha. Harrison Ford is an old, gruff guy. Wink, wink, haha. Ha. Also, a real estate broker who can't sell this house, right? So it's like there are elements, and you could totally see how a project like this gets off the ground i don't think harrison ford and josh hartnett got along Um, there are some quotes if you look back that suggest as much i think ford was his usual self in terms of his gruffness and maybe not exactly that welcoming and i don't know that hartnett was ready for that it sounds like something like that i mean regardless that movie's a bomb he comes out nobody sees it the budget's too big and this is, look, this is the end of Harrison Ford movie star, right? This, it kind of is an interesting inflection point, that movie, Hollywood Homicide, because you have an uh, you have a bona fide movie star at the end, where now he's really struggling to actually open movies, and then you have a young guy who maybe people want to be the next whoever, and it's just not there. So that's 2003, and that's maybe where that starts to kind of, the roller coaster gets to the peak and it's about to, you know, do a little bit of a freefall. Because then in 2004, he owns a movie. Wicker Park, directed by Paul McGeegan. He would make another movie only two years later with McGeegan that I think is actually kind of underrated. But this movie, Wicker Park, it's an MGM movie. It comes out in September, kind of a dreaded early September release. I don't know that anybody really had a lot of confidence in this movie, which is kind of a shame. I I think Wicker Park is an underrated romantic thriller. It's an American film that's based on a French film. And I think you with this, you always kind of run into... It's a crapshoot. European movies in general, I feel like for its audiences, there's a wider breadth of acceptance for abstraction and experimentation within even the genres. Uh, the movie Wicker Park's based on is a movie from the 90s called The Apartment, starring Vincent Cassell and Monica Bellucci. And I just think... You know, you have examples that do work, like Vanilla Sky, right? The Cameron Crowe picture with Tom Cruise based on Abre los Ojos, right? Um, Which is another European film. That movie also speaks to Tom Cruise's movie star power at that point. Made $100 million domestic. Performed pretty well for being as strange as it is. So it can work, right? And there's obviously a blueprint for it. But a lot of times I think when you're translating and transplanting these narratives... Eh, sometimes it gets lost in translation. And I think in this case, though I will defend Wicker Park and what's happening in it, um, audiences and even the studio putting it out necessarily wasn't really bullish on what it could do, right? And it's kind of a shame because you have a great supporting performance by young Rose Byrne, a very capable performance, I think lead performance by Hardnet. I think right in his wheelhouse as a performer, um, you know, Almost like a vacant, you know, lost guy in the middle of this whirlwind, not really sure how to get out of it. Diane Kruger's also in it. Matthew Lillard gives a pretty good supporting performance, another kind of almost star within that Freddie Prince Jr. Um, sphere. Uh yeah, the movie comes out, uh early September, like I said, makes thirteen million dollars domestic, barely anything foreign. Like we were saying before, Hollywood Homicide plus Wicker Park, the moment is slipping away. And also, let's not forget Heartnet, I think, also Was pushing back against it. He was offered. um, The role of Superman was offered to him multiple times. And he turned it down. uh, Citing that he didn't want to be locked into something for 10 years. Uh, Brett Ratner at that point. Was trying to get a Superman movie together. And Hartnett I think was his first choice. If not one of his main choices. So yeah I mean that's the other thing right. And this kind of brings us to maybe another reason. Some actors. Actresses. Maybe reject it right. Reject what becomes that pipeline right like Harrison Ford for example one of the biggest movie stars ever you look at that filmography I love so many of his movies but his willingness to experiment is few and far between right there's you have your the mosquito coast you have your frantic with Roman Polanski but mostly you have Jack Ryan movies right you have Indiana Jones movies you have Star Wars movies and you have versions of those movies. You have cop movies. You have The Devil's Own. You have Hollywood Homicide. Right? What Lies Beneath is kind of an outlier, which I recommend. I think it's kind of underrated. Robert Zemeckis movie, a movie he made while a movie he made while Tom Hanks had to lose weight for Castaway. Uh, he made this little thriller with uh, Michelle Pfeiffer and Harrison Ford. That's pretty good. The point here being that not every actor maybe wants to be harrison ford right maybe wants to be tom cruise maybe that is enough of a reason to you know explore different roles different avenues whatnot I I've, right? I've always wanted to
1: um move into a realm where mm-hmm. the character is a complex you know uh, has a mm-hmm. complex nature and when you're young it's very hard to find those characters there's you know, one every couple of years where there's a very young person who has a very, you know, has a great character. Um, so, to find those really complex roles, I think I just needed a little bit of time, mm. you know? And maturing as well, and... The, well, I mean, when I was younger, yeah. when I was younger, I was able to find them occasionally, like in Virgin Suicides or O. But most of the time, I had to play kind of the simple normal hero- heroic guy and the directors didn't want anything else from me so it wasn't really my fault that I couldn't create great characters you know it was like it's what's forced on you so I was frustrated with that and I took a, f- a bunch of steps back from Hollywood in order to find a new path you know
0: and so when you think about net and you think about how 2001 was maybe the beginning, the launch pad of potentially Josh Hartnett movie star, the year 2006, only five years later, is kind of the end, right? You have a few movies, none of them really hit, most of them are critically ignored or just kind of disregarded, and one of those is another Paul McGeegan movie, like we mentioned, and that's uh, Lucky Number 11. This is a movie that when I saw, I really didn't like. I saw it in theaters, I remember, and I just thought it was a ripoff, a Pulp Fiction Tarantino ripoff. I think that's kind of how it was covered when it came out, though there was one scene, and it's the scene that I uh, put at the top of this episode, is this lovely scene between Josh Hartnett and Lucy Liu, another almost star, uh, where they're having pillow talk, and they're talking about who their favorite James Bond actor is. It's an amazingly lovely scene. It's very charming. They have great chemistry. Lucy Liu uh, is another person that I kind of want to talk in depth about. Her career is fascinating, and she has a lot to say about uh, her career and why it maybe didn't get to the heights uh, we all thought it would. Some of that she um, says is due to racism, which is hard to uh, really honestly um Dispute, or you know, and there's a couple of inter- interesting interviews she's given uh, to that point. Um, not to mention the famous, semi famous Charlie An- Charlie's Angels feud she had with Bill Murray on set. You know, this annoying thing, and I'm, g- I'm getting off topic here, but this annoying thing in Hollywood about difficult women, right? You have this Annabelle, Annabella Sciora, um, Ashley Judd, Linda Fiorentino, Lucy Liu this world that we live in, this world of men where a woman who maybe is a bit stubborn, a bit um, independent, a bit, you know, speaking for herself, it seems, on sets, gets this stigma in uh, in a lot of cases, and then it follows her, right? And obviously, you know, it's not a one-size-fits-all thing, but it's something that I think deserves a little bit more introspection and discussion and I do hope to kind of maybe do another episode that focuses a little bit more on that thing because that to me is strange and aggravating and Lucy Liu is someone who I think that affected in her career but lucky number 11 comes out underperforms you know makes 20 or so million domestically 30 or so million internationally Uh, no one really talks about it Doesn't really get a a lot of coverage overall, mostly negative if it does. And over the years I revisited it, and I do think it's a a bit more smart and clever than I and maybe most people initially gave it credit for. And I think Hartnett's performance is one of the reasons why it sustains in my mind, and is a little bit better than perhaps you remember. He delivers the dialogue pretty expertly. I think McGeegan in his own way, also kind of an underrated director I think, knows how to work with Hardnett and really utilize the parts of Josh Hardnett's abilities, his skill set to really he's got an aloofness, right? He's a handsome guy, but he use he utilizes in both Wicker Park and Lucky Number 11 this like dopiness about Hardnett that then is subverted to almost a sneaky intelligence. And I think in both movies, it's pretty impressive what he gets out of him and it and like I said earlier in the episode, I kind of lament the fact that we don't see more of that throughout his career. There's another movie in 06 he makes, which I've actually seen. It's this movie called Mozart and the Whale. Kind of a hot script. He plays a guy who has Asperger's syndrome, and Roda Mitchell is the female lead who also has Asperger's. And they basically, it's a romance. They meet each other and fall in love. Uh, Written by Ron Bass, who wrote Rain Man, a bunch of other movies you would know. And then it got made, and it had a budget of $12 million, and it it barely came out. And finally, in 2006, The Black Dahlia, directed by Brian De Palma, starring Josh Hartnett, starring Aaron Eckhart, starring Hilary Swink, starring Scarlett Johansson. It's a film noir, a fictionalization of the real-life Black Dahlia murders. Feels right up Brian De Palma's alley. Really cool that Hartnett was able to work with such a master uh, of directing and filmmaking. Unfortunately, the movie... Uh, did not do well when it came out. Basically, made the exact same amount of money domestically that Lucky Number Eleven made, and is famously bad. Right? I mean, it's regarded as a miss in every single way. I would argue, not unlike Lucky Number Eleven, when you go back and you watch, there's some things to appreciate. A semi-controversial take is that Hartnett's really the only one who succeeds in his role. He does the narration. He's he's doing kind of a Humphrey Bogart thing. It works. It doesn't work.
1: Who are these men who feed on others? What do they feel when they cut their names into somebody else's life?
0: 2007, you get Resurrecting the Champ, a Rod Lurie movie, a journalism movie, uh, released by the Yari Film Group. I think maybe while they were dealing with bankruptcy. Doesn't really get much of a release. Samuel L. Jackson's in it as well. I think it's a pretty nifty little movie. Comes and goes, makes $3 million, people barely remember it. And then 30 Days of Night, right around Halloween, good movie. David Slade movie, does pretty well for a horror movie. I think is aged pretty well. It's a pretty good action movie. But it's a horror movie, it's a genre movie, so I don't know how much credit Hardnet really gets, you know, for leading that. So 2008, we're going to see his last theatrical release for almost a decade. And it barely gets a theatrical release. It's a movie called August. And it's set in August 2001, right before September 11th. Written and directed by Austin Chick. And I love this movie. And I think it's Josh Hartnett's best performance. And something uh, frequent guest Connor O'Donnell and myself talk about is how this is... uh, It's a shame. Because he's so good in this movie. Um, And... It comes out to nothing. It barely gets a release. And this is a common thing with him, right? I've been saying this a lot in this episode, I feel like. And it's the biggest shame with this movie because he plays this head of a tech company in 2001. Like I said, a tech company. It feels dated, but less so than 40 Days, 40 Nights, right? It makes more sense. Um, they're on the bubble. they're trying to go public, but um, they're racing against the clock. He's this like douchebag CEO and his brother's the tech genius and he's the face of this company. His brother's Adam Scott. There's a lot of good people in this movie and it's great. I mean it's short, it's punchy it's well written great performances. nobody saw it and after this he takes a long break which he's talked about when he comes back he's in Showtime's Penny Dreadful playing Ethan Chandler who has a side, another side to him pretty good performance he's a gunslinger um, there's a lot of interesting things happening there there's a lot to talk about with him is my point and there's a lot to talk about with a lot of these actors which is also my point um, which is why I think this is the first part of a longer series as we kind of move into these B-sides. I'm just going to rail off a couple movies for you. Antitrust, Ryan Phillippe, Rachel Lee Cook, Claire Forlani. Oh, we talked about. Love and Basketball, Small Success, but features Sanaa Lathan and Omar Epps who never really got their star shot. Chill Factor, Skeet Ulrich, Cuba Gooding Jr., The Mod Squad, also Omar Epps, Claire Danes, Giovanni Ribisi, Jade from 1995, we talked about Linda Fiorentino, and David Caruso after he left NYPD Blue. Down to you, Freddie Prince Jr., Julius Stiles, a bunch of other people, Matthew Lillard, the Best Man, Tay Diggs, Nia Long, also success, but featuring people who never really became the movie stars they probably should have been. Two can play that game Morris Chestnut, Vivica A. Fox, Ballistic, X versus Sever, Lucy Liu, Antonio Banderas, and finally, we talked about this Lucky Number 11, Hartnett and Lucy Liu as well. There's a million movies like this, a million here's on earth and a million of these actors who are pretty interesting, but never got that movie star shot or got the shot, but never uh, made it into something real. So I think moving forward, it might be interesting to periodically explore these people. Hartnett, we've obviously explored today. Lucy Liu is someone who I think deserves some, like we said, examination, her career. She's pretty great in Domino, if you remember that movie, kind of underrated Tony Scott, insane movie. And a bunch of these people, Tay Dix off the top of my house, Omar Epps. I just finished rewatching The Mod Squad. Whoa, that movie is something. There's plenty to talk about. It's an exciting time. I'm hoping to get guests on to pick some of these people to really dig in, branch off, almost be, have this be a side piece of this B-side podcast. I thank you for listening. I look forward to recording more of these and happy holidays. Actually.